you want to open your Bibles to John chapter 6, let me pray for us and ask God to bless uh, his bread, his word to us. Father, thanks that you came to us. Indeed, we couldn't reach to you. Indeed, we wouldn't want to. And so you saw fit to send your son, full of grace and truth, to speak truth to us, to demonstrate what real life looks like, and to capture our hearts and our souls, and to rescue them for the Father. Thanks for that work in each one of us. And this morning we come to remember, to celebrate, and to be strengthened in the things we know to be true. And even as we read your word this morning, continue to instill in us the truth and the power and the reality of these things. Please not let us go through our days just playing games or pretending But please do what only you can do. Um, Sink them deep into our hearts and our lives. So bless this morning, this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So John chapter 6. I'm going to read 1 through 15. It's the section we're going to look to this morning. And then I want to read uh, the very last few verses of this narrative of John chapter 6. So, John 6. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists. Sorry, I'm in the wrong, wrong book. That was good, too, right? So uh, Ryan will teach on that on deacons or something. OK, uh, John chapter six. Now we're now we're going. <laughs> took me a while to figure out that something didn't seem to quote, go quite right. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because uh, they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that the large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And then turn over to verse 66. At the end of this this discourse that Jesus gives after this on the, the bread of life, this is what happens. 
After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he uh, one of the twelve was going to betray him. And together, the word of, sorry, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So this miracle we're going to look at, this morning I'm going to look at John 6, and next week we're going to look at the miracle that follows it when Jesus walks on the water. So I was reflecting on this and the miracles that Jesus does, it's recorded in the Gospels. This is one of the miracles I wish I could have seen. The other ones I can kind of picture, I can kind of see what they would have looked like and what would have happened. But this miracle, I don't even have a construct in my mind what it would have looked like in action. You know, what, what would it have looked like for Jesus to take these five small loaves and two fish and to feed upwards of 20,000 people with this? What would it have looked like to see that in action. So I wish I could have witnessed this particular miracle of all of the ones that, could, that are recorded in the scriptures for us. But the bigger question isn't so much how Jesus did it, although that would have been interesting to see. The bigger question is, why did he do it? Why did he do it here? Why did he do it this time in this place? Why did he do it for these particular people? Why did he do it now? As best as we can tell, the, the, the Gospels show one other feeding that's miraculous, the 4,000. And you can go to John 2 and see how he provided wine in a miraculous kind of way. But the majority of the things that Jesus and his disciples ate and drank came from natural means. It wasn't supernatural, just normal ways of accessing the food. But this is a miraculous response. So why now? Why would Jesus, at this point in time take, um, use his power to bring this about. And I think that's an important question. If we're going to understand what Jesus is doing and through this miracle, certainly through the lens of John, it's important to ask why here and why now? This is the only miracle that all four gospels record. The only miracle, all the others, different kind of variations on, on what Jesus did, how he did it. We know what he did, but all four of the gospels record this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. So at least it tells us something about its importance. All the, the, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each one, the narrative is fairly close together. They're very similar. Um, John has some uniquenesses, and that's what we'll focus on this morning. But John also follows with this lengthy discourse. 71 verses is chapter 6. As he talks about himself after this being, he explains that he is the bread of life. This first I am statement of the seven in John, I am the bread of life. And you heard Chad as he read a section of that earlier in our worship time. That we see Jesus tells us, as he, 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 he gives us an instruction about who he is. And it ends where I ended this morning with our reading with Jesus and his disciples, the twelve, with just a simple question that he asks them as all the others have left. So the question is, why here? Why now that Jesus would do this? You might be aware that John's a little more selective in the miracles that he records in his gospel. In fact, he chooses seven and he uses language that's interesting. He says these are signs. 
that each one of them are identified as signs that Jesus does. They're miracles, they're, they're works of great power that you see. But there's seven of them that he records. Chapter 2, the water into wine at the wedding in Cana. Chapter 4, we see the official that's healed, his son is healed. Chapter 5, the, the invalid that's by the pool in Bethsaida. And then this was probably the fourth in, in a row of the fourth sign that we have. And you go to the walking on the water and then he heals the man born blind. And then you'll get to chapter 11 and where he heals or he raises Lazarus from the dead. So these are signs. And, and, and is it anything that Jesus does, the miracles that he does, they're not random. They're not arbitrary. They're not just kind of cute party tricks that he decides to pull out at different points. But they have a purpose. They have a, a function. And so that's why John uses this important word. They're signs. And what do signs do? They point. They tell us something about where we are and where we're going. Tell us something about who Jesus is. And of course, we know by the end of we get to John, his intentions are that we to see these signs and these signs are to lead us to belief in the one who is performing the signs, to believe and to trust that he is the son of God and to entrust ourselves to him. So that's the direction that he's going. They're lived out or they're acted out parables that we can see in action, real events that happened, but they speak truths about who Jesus is. And this morning, I want to look at this particular sign, the feeding of the 5,000, and ask the question, what's the point? Why is it here? Why did Jesus choose this time and this place and these people to feed them to perform this sign? There's two themes that I think will be important for us if we're going to understand what John intends to do. The first theme is abundance. is the abundance of God's provision. And the second theme is man's response to God's abundance. John has some themes that he is emphasizing in his gospel in this. And if we're to understand this miracle, this sign correctly, those are the two themes that will be helpful for us. But real quick, just the the setting of this whole thing. John gives us the setting. The first few verses, first four verses, tell us where they are. They're by the, the east side. They've went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. John just says, by the way, when he's writing his gospel, it was probably known more as the Sea of Tiberias. So these two seas are the same. And you know it is the Sea of Tiberias. It's the Sea of Galilee. They're probably on the eastern side. And they've gone over there, described as kind of the mountainous region. It's what we would understand today or know as the Golan Heights. By the way, if you Google that, you can see some cool pictures. It's kind of a vast mountainous region, fairly wildernessy kind of, you know. And and so we have this picture there they are in this wilderness, kind of mountainous area, and all these crowds are following him. Now in verse 2, John tells us about the crowds. And it gives us just a little hint of how he sees the crowds. A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he had done. They've seen what he's done, and so they're interested in these miracles that he has performed. John does not have a very positive view of the crowds in his gospel. As he sees them, they're fickle and they're self-serving. They're really incapable of seeing anything beyond their own material needs. Hmm, sounds familiar, right? And so he, his view of the crowds, in fact, by the end of this narrative, right, where are the crowds? Well, they're nowhere to be found. And so we see that. And then in verse 4, John tells us the time period, right? He says it's the Passover. The Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. So we know where they are, 
We know who's there. We know the time period. Now, it's important, as John tells us, it's the Passover. This is the second Passover that he records as they're here by the Sea of Galilee. They're in that time period. And it's not just kind of doing chronology, right? He's not just interested and so you can locate it on a calendar. There's more that John is interested in telling us as he tells us. By the way, it's the Passover. And what will be important is understanding and knowing this time period if we're really going to interpret or read this sign properly. If we're going to understand what Jesus is doing, why he's doing it now, I think this is important that we see it's the Passover and use that as a lens to understand why Jesus is doing. So it gives us a context, which is important. And then five through nine, we have this interaction he has with his disciples, especially Philip here and Andrew, as he asks this question, where do we buy bread for so many? As they've come, there's many of them there. He's been teaching. It's clear that they're hungry and they need food. And so he just asked the question, how are we going to feed them? Asked Philip specifically, he probably lives nearby and says, what are we going to do? And of course, we know when God or when Jesus asks a question, he doesn't ask questions in the same way we do. He asks questions to draw us out, not to gather information. Because John says, by the way, in case you didn't know, Jesus already knew what he was going to do. He already had this figured out, but he's testing. He is inviting his disciples into a situation and bringing them into his Plan. And he asked the question, and of course, Philip says, you know, eight months of, of wages wouldn't buy enough food for everybody to get a little peace, right? You can do the math. It's a ton of money. Won't even come close to feeding them. And then we have Andrew as he comes up. He comes by. He's found a kid. You know, he's got five barley loaves and he's got a couple small fish. The Greek is clear. It's a, it's a little fish. And he brings it. He brings his kid and he goes, hey, we got some food here. We got to start. Let's, can we do something with this? And you go, that's just an astounding step. Good job, Andrew, right? That's a, that's a start. Let's see if we can get some more. And what's Jesus do? Takes it. He says, okay, I got this. What's he do? He seats him down. Everybody sit down, okay? And then we have the process. He takes the food and says that he blesses it. He blesses each one. And by the way, there's grass in the area. John says, by the way, it's grass. It's a comfortable place to to sit. Matches the springtime of Passover. Sit down. And then he blesses both the bread and he blesses the fish. And he he says something, uh, you know, like this. I love this this picture that that the commentators tell us that this was a a common blessing uh, that would have been given in the Jewish blessing. Blessed art thou, O Lord, Our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. As Jesus would pray to his father and would acknowledge this little bit and any amount of food that we have comes from you. The one who brings forth bread from the earth. What a great prayer for us even today. So we sit down to a meal to know where did this come from? It comes from God, the King of the earth. And so they distribute the food. And then they do, they gather it up, right? Gather up the leftovers, the the scraps of the bread. And what do we find? There's 12 baskets left over. You don't have to be a mathematician to know 12 baskets, fair amount left over, more than what they started with. And then we have verses 14 and 15. The people's response to what they've seen. It's, It's a dual response in 14. They saw the sign, right? They saw what had happened and they said, this indeed is the prophet who had come into the world. 
This is the prophet, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. That's the prophet that Moses talked about. He prophesied in Deuteronomy 18. They saw the pictures. But then what they want to do in verse 15, perceiving then that they were uh, this, that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdraws to the mountain by himself. Well, the question we want to ask is, what, what do we get? What lessons? What do we draw from this? How do we answer the question, why here and why now? And I've mentioned already the two themes. There's a, a lot of lessons you could pull out of this, right? A lot of lessons. You could talk about, you know, Jesus is able to take a little and make a lot. So, so share your lunch with other people, right? You, you can teach your kids, you know, don't waste your food. You gather it up and see what God can do with the leftovers, you know, you, there's a lot of different things. What, what can Jesus do in his hands? And, and they're all true and they're good. But I think what John wants us to see, certainly those things, but especially is God's abundant provision to meet the needs of humanity. That abundance is a picture in this. And then also man's response to God's abundance. What does man do with God's abundance? As God brings that forth. So that's the two themes we're going to hit on this morning. First of all, this picture of God's abundance is a clear one. It's not just here. You'll find it thread throughout his entire gospel. That when God gives anything, he doesn't give it in any kind of reluctant way or sparingly, but he gives it in an extraordinary kind of way. You go back to John chapter 2 and you see that the wedding in Canaan, when Jesus stepped into that situation... It's a shameful situation, certainly, for the, the folks who, who had hosted this wedding. For the, for the water, for the, for the uh, wine to run out in a wedding, it was symbolic of God's great faithfulness. His ability to provide. So if the wine was gone, it was, it was an indictment on God's faithfulness. It questioned God's faithfulness. And so what's Jesus do? He steps into that situation and he fills it up with himself. He fills up with an abundance. By the way, if you go back to that, you'll find that not just a little bit of wine, but hundreds of gallons of the best wine that he fills up that gap with, with the abundance of his provision. And there's so much more in that particular miracle. Then if you jump to John chapter four, you find as Jesus is interacting with the woman at the well. And you remember the theme there is waters. They're sitting there and she's getting water and Jesus asks her for water. And he says, if you knew who it was who was asking you for water, you would ask him and he would have given you living water. Then he goes on to explain this water that I give, you will never be thirsty again forever. In fact, the water that I give will be a perpetual source of living water forever. An ongoing spring of water that will flow out of you. And so this abundance of life that Jesus promises her in that picture. And then we come to this picture, the image shifts from wine to water to this new image that's dripping with meaning from Israel's history, and that is bread. This picture of a vast group of people hungry and eating food. See if you can do this math problem with me. Take a multitude of hungry Israelites, Israelites, add a vast wilderness setting, and then add to that Bread and meat provided miraculously with no effort by the recipients in a miraculous kind of way. Okay? Group, a multitude of Israelites, a vast wilderness setting, food provided in a miraculous way. Does that ring a bell? 
Does that ring a bell anywhere as you think about the history of Israel? And you go, oh, I've heard about that before, right? I know that story of the Israelites in the wilderness and they were wandering around and they were hungry. And what did God do? He gave them bread. And then He gave them quail. From where? Nowhere. (laughs) Completely out of the blue, He provides them. And how much? More than they could ever eat. Abundant amounts of both bread, manna, and food. And you go, oh yes, I see this. In fact, they get it, right? At the end in verse 14, the bells and whistles are going off in their head as they see what's done. They go, here we are, Israelites in this wilderness setting, and what do we get? We got all this food. We were hungry, but now we're full. And they go, surely this is the one. This is the prophet who was to come. And, and, and John says, don't miss this abundance. They saw it, and, and he emphasized it even in his text, the, certainly the amount of money it would take to feed them, the, the, the feed all of this group. And then in, in verse 11, it's interesting, John says, two, has two phrases that emphasize this. It says, as much as they wanted, they ate. As much as they wanted. And then in 12, it goes on to say, and when they had eaten their fill, they were full. They'd eaten as much as they wanted. Not a scrap, not a little piece, not a morsel. They'd eaten their filled. Mark says, and they ate and they were satisfied. Right? They're, they're filled up with as much as they could possibly eat. And then what do we do? We see that there's leftovers. They gather the scraps, which is a common Jewish thing to do. And what do we have? Twelve baskets full. 12,000 people, up to 20,000 people filled. 12 baskets left over from what they had eaten. What did they start with? Five loaves, two fish. By the way, does it really matter how many loaves or how many fish he started with? We can do the math. It's irrelevant what he started with, whether he had a little or a lot. The fact that we have 20,000 people filled is, is an amazing picture and 12 baskets, it's certainly a symbolic number, and we could do all the numbers on that, but don't miss the point, right? There's more left. There could be 12 baskets. There could be 12,000 baskets. It's really irrelevant. When he provides, he provides abundantly. At the hands of Jesus, the needs of humanity are met, and there's more left over than what started with. And his teaching that followed the sign, the bread of life, he says, I am the bread of life. I will provide all that you need. He would lay his life down. He would provide an extravagant, abundant amount in the act that he would do in laying his life down on the cross. And we see this picture that the abundance that Jesus meets our needs with is that God miraculously fed the Israelites in the wilderness. Jesus miraculously feeds the 5,000. He will miraculously provide all that we need. Not just enough, but plenty. And so we see this picture of abundance. But now the question is, what do they do with it? They've been fed. They're filled up. And even in the the, the narrative that follows, you heard the story. They want more food. Keep giving this this food. How do we keep getting this? That they're interested on that. We see how man responds as to God's, his his abundance. In verse 14, they get something right. They get it right. The, 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 the pictures that, that Jesus has accurately communicated through his sign, who he is and why he's come and why he's feeding them here and now. And they get the picture of this one. This indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. They, they saw the sign. But the question is, what did they, exactly they see? Right? What did they see? 
Like I said, I would have loved to have seen it. Well, it's likely if there's 20,000, they didn't see the particulars of the miracle. But there's two things they knew, right? First, they were in a kind of a desolate place. There, there wasn't a McDonald's nearby. There wasn't a Panera Bread. There wasn't an Ibis Bakery close by to get bread. They knew they were in a desolate place. But what's the next thing they knew? They were filled. They were full. They'd been given food from somewhere. They'd eaten it and they were full. They were hungry, but now they were filled. That's the sign. They, they got it. They'd experienced the miracle because they were filled up. They were full. And so we see that that's, that's, that's the picture. And that they began to understand that. And bells and whistles were going off in their heads. A multitude of Israelites fed in the wilderness area with miraculous food. The fact that it's the Passover only heightens the intensity and, and the symbology of this meaning, right? It's Passover. They would have understood that the one that Moses spoke about would have provided the same kind of thing that Moses did. They remembered the prophecy. If you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy 18. We see these words from Moses. About this one who would come. This is the one they refer to. 18 verse 15. As Moses is preparing them for crossing the Jordan to go into the land, he tells them this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at at Oreb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. And then verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put, um, I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command. What's going on there? As they, as they think back to Sinai, to Horeb, and they, they saw and experienced and heard the unmediated, disembodied voice of God. And they thought they were going to die. And so what does God do? He says, I'm going to send them, I will send you an embodied, mediated voice. One who will come, a brother from among you. I will put my words in him. In fact, he will be my word. In fact... You need to listen to what he says to you. You need to believe what he says. That's what Moses says. And they get this picture, right? They get it. That's the prophet that Moses spoke about. This is him. He's feeding us. We're filled up. This sign points to that one. He who they have come, who has come to to feed them and care for them. They interpreted it rightly. But what's wrong? They didn't listen to him. They didn't listen to what he had to say. And this is where they leave the road. They get it right, but then they leave the ditch. They missed, they missed the red, the sign at this point. And verse 15 is where they go. Yes, he's the prophet, but then what are they going to do? Perceiving then that they were about to come and make him, take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdraws. This verse is unique in John. As John looks again at the crowds and he says, this is what they wanted to do. This was their intention. This is a strange verse. It's a strange response to God's abundance that they would then want to, by force, take and make him king. Might ask the question, what's wrong with these people who've experienced this miracle? 
wanting to, by force, by their own power, make Jesus king. What's wrong with that? If you thought to yourself, everything is wrong with it, you would be right. Because everything is backwards there, right? We're going to make him king. We're going to use our power to make him king. Moses has commanded them to listen to him, not to seek to impose their own will upon him. And you see what's going on here, right? Kind of the nationalistic fervor that's born out of the fact that it's the Passover. 5,000 men, a nice little army that's kind of gathered here. The miracles, they're wanting to kind of leverage Jesus' power for their own ends, their own interests. That's what they're up to. That's what they do with his abundance. They want to take his power and translate it into their own interests, their own efforts, without any kind of questioning. My first pass at this, as I read this, I look at their intentions and to, to make Jesus king by force. I think, how bizarre, right? How, why would they want to do that? How do they think they could use him for their own ends, their own means, what they, what they want to get out of him? My instincts are to ridicule them, make fun of them. But then what happens is I look before the surface, below the surface of my own life. I begin to see the commonality and the impulses that they had. It feels a lot like my responses. How do I respond to God's abundance? What do I do with what he has done for me? What do I do with his power to meet my needs? And I find I want to use his abundance for my own self-interested understanding of my well-being. I want to use what he gives, his abundance, for how I see and understand what's good for me, my, my view of those things, and I realize that like them, I get the most important things wrong. I want to use something good for my own interests. And so as we look at our response, man's response to God's abundance, there's two things we get wrong. Probably more than that, but at least this. First of all, we, we have a wrong assessment of power, right? What's real power? What does it look like in action? Again, their interest was to leverage his power to accomplish their ends. That he, they would want to take him by their force and make him king. They, they thought only in worldly, temporal, geopolitical kinds of terms. Power to dominate, right? Power to, to overtake our aggressors. Those who rule over us as opposed to loving and submitting Their thoughts were that they could use this power to heal and to provide and they could use it to put their own king of their choosing in place, right? A king who would do what we want him to do. And so it's our power. They had a wrong understanding. But the truth is, it's not their power that would make him king. He's already king. He doesn't look like a king. He doesn't act like the king that they would choose, nor maybe a king that we would choose, but he was all ready king and they wanted to leverage again his power for their interests see our response needs to be different our response needs to be instead of leveraging his power it's simply surrender surrendering any power that we have to him to bow the need and submit to him it's in that that we see true power true strength and the ability to bow and to surrender ultimately to him, to see that our power is found in weakness, 
that we're strong only when we find that we really don't have any strength in and of ourselves. See, Jesus had already faced these temptations. As he faced face to face the the, the temptation of the, the power that's offered in the world and the flesh and from Satan himself. And he said, no, that the, the power that God uses is of a completely different kind from the power that the world exercises. The power that he, the world, that, that God calls us is a power of serving and submission, of pouring our life out instead of taking, giving, instead of dominating, submitting, Dying to herself, kindness and compassion. It's the complete inverse of a world's understanding of what power is. It's opposite. It's upside down. And thus we would see his power displayed greatest as he laid his life down. So this picture of power is wrong for us. But also we have a wrong assessment of our need. Right? The king who abundantly provides our needs is one that we need to trust in. That's our greatest need. Our deepest need is to simply trust in him where he leads us, how he leads us. In verse 29, Chad read this earlier when they asked him, what must we do to do, be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is what you do. This is what you're to do to listen to him, to believe him, to trust in him. That's our work. That's your response to his abundance, to entrust yourselves to him, to do, to believe in him. But we find that we refuse that. We resist trusting. We want to take our own efforts, our own power, and and again, leverage his in light of our own interests. In Psalm 95, the second half to the psalm that we read in our call to worship this morning God has an indictment against the Israelites who wouldn't trust him, who refused to trust him in the wilderness. And he says two things, at least in the last half of that Psalms. He says, first, they go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. They go astray in their hearts. They don't even understand what I'm about. They have not aligned their hearts, their desires with me to trust in my goodness rather than question it in light of their circumstances. And you see, they didn't, and we don't understand God's ways and his intentions. And ask, well, what are God's intentions? What does he intend to do to the wilderness, to the, the Israelites in the wilderness, to these 5,000, to us? We see that even in that section where Jesus says, for he knew what he intended to do. And we can read that understanding, what he intended to do to the very end of the story of this narrative. His intentions were to be standing there with his twelve. With everyone else having left. And his intentions were at that point to ask the question and affirm their faith. That they would come to trust in him. That they would believe in the king. That their faith would be evident in that particular situation. That's God's intentions. And that's our greatest need. Is that we would trust in him. And his intentions is to strengthen that. That's that his abundance is real. And though we might not always see it. His abundance is visible. But here's the problem, right? The problem is that we often seek places where faith isn't necessary. We're resistant to those places. We run to places where we don't have to trust. And so in that respect, God's abundance is the kind of allure for us. It's a blessing, but it's also a lure away from faith. They wanted more food and they said to him, give us this food always. We don't have to want to pray for our daily bread. 
We want to know where it's going to come from. We want to know. We don't, we don't want to have to trust. And so God's abundance is a lure away from trusting Him. That's what they wanted. It's what we want. And we want to use God's abundance materially in a way to minimize the necessity of faith, which is seeing without really seeing. A number of years ago, when I was in staff, my wife and I was Campus Crusade, now crew, we lived for 13 years raising money, you know, asking people for money, and they gave it to us. And, and we lived on that, and it's kind of like you never really get, I mean, you're always kind of wondering where it's going to come from. Well, there was one January, we're completely out of the blue. One of our donors gave us a stock gift, and the stock gift turned out to be $10,000 gift. When our balance of our account hovered around $100, generally, and $10,000 was dropped into our account, we just about fell over. And it was an incredible blessing, just un- completely unsolicited, out of the blue, the abundance of God plopped into our account. And as I reflect on those, the months that followed, I remember loving, I'd look at my account balance going, yes, I got money. But I remember the blessing and I remember the curse. Because what I found myself doing was trusting in that abalance, that abundance, more than trusting in God. And guess what happened over the course of that year? It just kind of went down, down, down. And guess what happened when January came around? I looked for that again. Didn't come. God says, abundance is a gift. But be careful that it doesn't steal your faith. Because the Christian life, what's necessary, part and parcel, is believing in the King. Not just what you can see in His abundance, but looking to the abundance that is not terribly visible. And Jesus says in this narrative, in His discourse beyond, He says, you need to trust Him beyond what you can see and touch and feel. And He says, I'm true bread. I'm true food. I am true life. I'm true sustenance. And he says, I invite you, the abundance that you really need is really not what you can see. But what we do, what we can see points towards that abundance that's there. And so our need is to believe, it's to trust. We don't get to control and that's a terrifyingly beautiful place. And so God shows up in ways that we couldn't imagine. He brings us there So we misunderstand what power looks like. We misunderstand what our need ultimately is. It's ultimately to trust. And as Jesus says, my abundance is available. Don't try to leverage my power for your ends and trust in me. I'm going to land the plane here in the next three or four minutes. Four points to kind of pull this all together. As we think about the miracle and what Jesus is doing with it. First of all, God's gift, what God gives is is abundant. I've said that. He would go on to say, I give life and I give it abundantly. And that abundance is seen ultimately in a man on a cross. As Jesus lays his life down to provide in an abundant way all that we need. So what God gives is abundant. What God gives meets our deepest need. One year later from this point would be the Passover that Jesus would lay his life down for these people. And this one who had given them bread miraculously would give them his body and his blood to meet the deepest needs of humanity. That sins would be forgiven. That shame would be removed. And that honor would be restored. 
to his people. So what God gives is abundant. What he gives meets our deepest need. What God gives requires faith, right? Faith and belief precedes our understanding. By the end of this account, when he faces the 12 and he asks the question, do you want to leave also? And they respond, Peter responds, where else do we go? And, and, and you see in that response, faith, at the same time, if you were to ask them, I think you would find they didn't have a clue what just happened. They saw thousands following him. They saw him feed them and they saw them all leave. And it's just him and the 12. Again, they didn't understand, but they believed. Faith, belief precedes understanding. That's the Christian life. We wish we could understand, but the fact is, as we believe and trust, some degree of understanding will follow. That's why faith is a gift. It must come from God himself, implanted in us, exercised by us. It doesn't mean we understand everything. It's not without knowledge, but it's certainly without complete understanding, and that's the nature of it. So what God gives us requires faith. But then finally, what God gives is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. What God gives is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. I love this imagery from C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle. I won't go to that point, but we see even in the bread and the loaves, right? Or the bread and the fish. It's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. How can you feed 20,000 people with such a small amount of food? But the bigger question is, how is it that one man could hang on a cross for the sins of the entire world? How is it that one man could hang on a cross and provide forgiveness of sin for all who would trust in him? How is it that all of history can point towards that moment, that period of time, that person? It's because what God gives is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. We see on the cross the infinite, holy, righteous Word of God, the man, the one who is made flesh, God's word who is full, filled up with grace and he was filled with truth. He reveals the abundance, the extravagance of God, his power and his glory by dying on a cross. What he provides is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. And that's why the world looks at a man hanging on a cross and says, that makes no sense to me. But to the Christian who looks at it and he says, that's what I need. The sins of the world. Resting on this man who was sent by God. There's more here than our eyes can grasp, our minds can get a hold of. But as we trust in him, we get to experience the abundance of his provision. The life that he promises. And the beauty of this is now, the reality is that he indwells us, those who believe in him, who understand that his power is sufficient, who understand the need is to trust him. And now he says, I will dwell in you. And the reality is the one who dwells in us is bigger on the inside than he is on the outside. And now that power is at work in and through us to demonstrate to the world what that really looks like, the abundance of God. Let's pray. Father, thanks that you have provided for our needs materially and, 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 and spiritually, that we see this one on a cross and we understand that his death is sufficient. In fact, it's beyond sufficient to meet the needs 
of each one of us. And I pray that, one, we would remember that grace. That, two, that those who have not trusted would trust. Put their power to the side. Lay it to the side and to entrust themselves to you even this morning. And that for those of us who have trusted, you would instill and strengthen that trust and belief in you. That we would surrender in an ongoing way and find that you're sufficient. Father, thank you for the, the, the wedding yesterday of Evan and Courtney Barnes. And we pray for their new life together as a married couple. And that you would bless them. We pray for Dan as they send him out this next week to Ethiopia. We pray for Andrew Brunson, Father, our brother, pastor in prison in, in Turkey. And even today as the, the voting goes on there, that you would provide a way in which he would be rescued. But even now he would know that you're with him and your abundance would be there. So, Father, thanks for your goodness. Help us to walk with you today.